Good morning, church. It's great to see you guys, those of you joining online at True Worth and those out in the sanctuary. It's great to be here with you all. And before we dive in, there's just a couple of quick things I want to uh, announce. And the first is we want to let you know that for those of you that have been following, we have drawn our winners for the My Crazy Family Challenge. And these are our winners. If you're new here, um, we had a, a challenge set up for the body for six weeks. And uh, these families were here every weekend, and we drew their names out. They've won uh, a family night out on us, and they've also won prime parking, which we know is a commodity here. Uh, if you didn't win, don't, don't fret. We'll probably do something like this again soon enough, so just be on the lookout. Uh, the second thing is this Wednesday begins a new season in the life of the church. It marks our season of Lent. And we'll do that by having our Ash Wednesday service. It's at 6.30 this Wednesday in here. And if this is your first trip around the sun here at Pathway and you're not sure what Lent is, you're not sure what Ash Wednesday is, I would invite you to come on out at 6.30 and, and learn more about that. will be about a 30-minute service, some music, some uh, devotional, and uh, time for prayer as well. So come check it out. And those of you that, that normally come but for whatever reason can't make it this Wednesday at that time, as early as 5.30 that morning, we'll have the opportunity for you to come and receive ashes on your way into work if you so desire. The last thing is this. You'll notice in your sermon notes, it's just a white page, just blank. This is, this is by design. I promise you I wasn't just being lazy today. I, I, I've done it so that you have the opportunity to take notes on your own terms today. So I want to I encourage you to engage with the story on your terms and, and write things down that, that speak to you today. Now, this is a story that I've been really looking forward to. If, if you don't know this about me, I'm a thinker. I, I, I live inside my head. I, I stay there nonstop. Now, I know, I know there are those of you that when you lay down at night and your head hits the pillow with like in a minute, you're asleep. I know this because I'm married to one. That's not me. Like an hour after I lay down, I'm still tossing and turning because I just, I can't stop thinking. Like my, my brain just keeps going and going. I'm not worried. I'm not anxious. I'm not nervous. I'm just thinking. It, it doesn't stop. Now, I'd like to tell you that I'm always thinking about really important stuff. But sometimes, man, I'm thinking about some really stupid stuff, too. <laughs> like the other night, and this is no lie, I, I found myself at 1130 at night power ranking my favorite songs from the Urban Cowboy soundtrack. <laughs> I hadn't even heard the soundtrack in a long time, and it just randomly pops in my head. Uh, but I am. I'm always thinking. Now, this story, I'm really excited about it because this story speaks to that version of me, the part that's just, it's right up here. And I know for some of you, that's not a natural place for you to be. So it's going to be a challenge for you to, to try to really engage primarily with your mind first and then go into your heart. But that's going to be the ask today because this story is just a wonderful playground for the mind. It's a story about love, about betrayal. It's about forgiveness. And like all good stories, about redemption. It's the story that we call the prodigal son. So in your Bibles, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 15. Now, all good stories, they, they can't just start with the plot. 
All good stories, you, you got to set the scene first. So we need to do that as well. We need to set the scene for where Jesus was when he told these stories. So at the beginning of Luke 15, Jesus is sitting down having a meal with a group of sinners. And this wasn't an uncommon thing for Jesus, but it was a setting that the religious leaders just couldn't understand. It, it offended them. You see, they had, they had strict cultural lines that you just didn't cross. You know, imagine, if you will, a police officer who makes regular practice of sitting down with criminals to eat. It's just, it's just something you didn't do. You see, the, the sinners were the very people that the religious leaders saw as the enemy, the bad guys, the threat to their tradition. And, and imagine, you know, if you, if, if you had the opportunity to, to mingle with anybody that you could, you're probably going to choose to spend your time with the people that are higher up in the social status or the people that you can benefit from or you can network with. You're probably not going to spend time with the people that society says are beneath you. But for Jesus, this is just another day in the office. You see, Jesus doesn't, doesn't really care for social standings or networking. Jesus has a different value system, a different form of currency. He values relationships. So as he's having dinner with these sinners, the religious leaders, they become scandalized by it, and they begin to mock him. They say things like, what's this guy doing? What's he doing? Jesus hears this, and he responds with three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Now, before we dive in, I, I want us to take a moment just to consider the title, because I don't think it's a good title. It's certainly not the title that, that Jesus gave it. I mean, it came, that came later. But if, if you didn't know anything about the story other than the title, what would you assume it's about? The, the prodigal son. But if you know the story, you know that it's also about the older brother. And it's also about the father. And what a lot of people don't realize is there's actually a fourth character in this story that often gets overlooked. We'll take a look at him here in a minute. But first, we have the first act of the story. It picks up at verse 11. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Interesting side note. If I were to ask anybody living in America why he was hungry, almost everybody is going to point to verse 13 and say he squandered his property in reckless living. Did you know that when that question gets asked to people living in Africa, they point to verse 14 where it says a severe famine arose in the country. 
because they understand their world through the context of harvest. And when people living in Central America get asked that question, they point to verse 16, where it says no one gave him anything, because they understand their world through the context of community. And in every place, nobody would consider the possibility of the other answers. Now, whatever the case is, whatever you think is a reason why he's hungry, I think that points out that whatever our context is, however we read the Bible, that context plays a big part in what we pay attention to in the Bible and the things that we kind of ignore or we don't, we don't notice. But the story goes on. Verse 17 but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my fa father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the story begins with, with the younger son doing the unthinkable. He asks for his inheritance while his father is still alive. And so he's showing the father what it is that he truly values. He doesn't, he doesn't value the relationship with the father. What he values is the stuff that his father has. Now, what's even more unthinkable is how the father responds Almost immediately, the father grants his request. He divides up his property, and he gives his younger son his share of the inheritance and lets him go. Now, it should be fairly obvious by now that the father figure of this story represents God. And this is how God deals with us. You see, God desperately wants to be in relationship with us, but he doesn't force that relationship onto us. Out of his love for us, he gives us free will, the ability to choose whether or not to be in a relationship with him. And at any point, he allows us to take whatever material possessions that we have and do whatever we please with them. Now, I think that's a common experience. I would argue that, that many of us, at one point in time or another, we are the younger brother. You know, for many of us, Moving off to college or starting a career, that, that marks the time for us when we begin to rebel from whatever values we've been taught. Now, this is that time where we start to establish who we think we are, who, what our identity is, who we're going to become. And we come up with our own value system that the whole cause and effect situation really hasn't fully set in yet. And we make individual freedom the highest good. But this also leads to us learning some, some hard lessons in life. And have you, have you gotten to your 30s and your 40s or beyond and, and said this, you know, if, if I only knew then what I know now. Raise your hand if you did some stupid stuff in your 20s. 
If you're not raising your hand, you're either shy or you're lying. <laughs> or you're still in your 20s and you're still doing the stupid stuff and you don't want to admit it. That's okay, wherever you are. I wish, I wish at that time in my life, I would have written down what my values were. Just so I could look at them now and see how much has changed. Because, you know, in, in, in hindsight, I, I never really walked away from my faith, but my value system certainly didn't show that. There didn't seem to be a place in my value system for God. I, I made myself God of my own world. And this led to a lot of hurt, a lot of painful experiences, not, not just for me, but for the people around me too. I hurt a lot of people. But once we've experienced the brunt end of cause and effect, what do we do? We, we begin to reevaluate our value system, what we think is important. Now, some of us are lucky. Some of us make it through this stage in life with, with minimal collateral damage. But some of us are not so lucky. Some of us have scars to show where we've been. Some of us have made some poor choices that led to us without, all of a sudden without a job or without a career that we worked so hard to achieve. Some of us find ourselves divorced, dealing with joint custody, or dealing with the reality that maybe our kids don't care to really be around us that much. Some of us make choices that lead to us actually having a record of how destructive our youth was. Whatever the case is, that's where the younger brother is. He's made a total wreck of his life, and he can't find his way back. He's got no place to live. He's got nothing to eat. And he only has the company of pigs. So he, he resolves to come crawling back to his father. And he even comes up with a plan of how he's going to earn his father's favor back. Now, I know that we know that God's love is bigger than this. I think, I think we still deal with God this way. We, we bargain with God. We say things like, Man, I screwed up. God, I'm, I'm in a pickle. If you could just get me through this, I promise I'll start coming to church every Sunday. I promise I'll start tithing. I'll start doing this. I'll start doing this. And we bargain with God as though the grace of God is something that was ever on the bargaining table to begin with. But what do we learn from the story? The younger brother as he's coming back, the father sees him in the distance, and he immediately, he closes that distance. You see, I think we overstate the distance that our sin has created between us and God, because all it takes is to just stop and to turn and realize that whatever distance we thought was there, God's already closed. So the father wastes no time. Before the son can even unveil his plan to work back into the father's graces, the father clothes him, puts a ring on his finger, and he throws a party. And then he says this. I love this line. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I think this is a powerful statement of the grace of God. Because you see, for God, our sin is always in the past. Our salvation is is always in the present. I, never, I think that's why I never understood that question. I grew up in a religious tradition 
that it was common to be asked this question, when were you saved? I never understood that. I hated that question. Because you know what what my answer is? You want to know when I was saved? Every moment of every day. Every day God continues to save me from myself. And I'm never going to need to stop going to the fountain of God's grace and drinking from it every day. Now, we also tend to keep a record of our past, our our own little highlight reel of of screw-ups. It's hard to forgive ourselves. It's hard to, to let it go. But what is God saying here? God's saying, look, I don't care about your past. I'm ready to celebrate with you now. I'm ready to celebrate where I see you going from here. Look, why, why are you hanging out in the past? I'm not with you in the past anymore. I'm with you right now. And if you'll help me, if you'll allow me, I'm going to help you write a chapter for the rest of your life. And it's going to look a lot cooler than where you've been. And then the father proceeds to throw a huge party. And if you know anything about party planning, you know that these sort of parties don't just happen, do they? They require a lot of planning. You see, I don't think the father waits for the son to come back to begin planning this party. I think the moment the son left, that's when the father began planning this party. Because the father knew. The father knew what was probably going to happen to his son. The father knew the sort of justice that the world was probably going to dole out onto him. But thanks be to God, while the world is making plans for justice, God's making plans for redemption. I want you to hold on to that, because I think that's one of the most powerful parts of our gospel. So we have a party. And we have this nice storybook ending. Everybody lives happily ever after. Except the story doesn't end there. At this point, Jesus makes the move into the second act of the story, the older brother. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, how many of us can relate to the older brother in this story? I mean, we probably don't want to admit it. But if we're honest with ourselves, we understand, right? We we relate to his frustration, his anger. I mean, why wouldn't he be angry? Like, all this time he worked. Never missed a day, never complained. He just worked. And when his younger brother gets rewarded for a lifetime of reckless living, you get it, right? I mean, how do we respond when somebody else gets something that they didn't earn or they didn't deserve? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it frustrates us, right? 
I think our current economic system sets up this frustration. You see, the, the American dream is built on the premise that if you work hard enough, you can achieve whatever your heart desires. And if you find yourself without, well, then you probably made some mistakes or you didn't work hard enough. And sometimes we think the economics of God's grace works the same way. But what do we learn about God's grace in this story? Everybody gets it. If only those that deserved it received it, then guess what? Nobody's getting it, not even the older brother. You see, I would argue this story probably has more to do with the older brother than it does the younger brother, and even more so about the father. And as we, as we pay attention to the second act of this story, we learn some important things about the older brother that we might want to pay attention to. But we also learn a lot of powerful things about God along the way. So, so how do we know? How do we know that he's angry? Well, verse 28, he says that very thing. But his actions, they reveal this as well, don't they? He refused to go into the party. You see, I think this is a pitfall for many of us. We can be driven so much by a competitive spirit that we just cannot celebrate somebody else's victory. Maybe that's why he, he wanted nothing to do with the party. Or maybe sometimes we have our own identity of success so tightly wrapped up in somebody else's failures. Maybe that's why the older brother can only think of his younger brother in terms of what he'd gotten wrong and not what he had gotten right. Or maybe he was just plain selfish. That because his, his younger brother had already received his portion of the inheritance, this party was being funded by the older brother's portion of the inheritance. That his younger brother coming back home meant that his piece of the pie just diminished. Or did it? You see, I think the, I think the older brother makes two key mistakes that we want to pay attention to. I want you to take a look at verse 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. How does the father respond? In verse 31, he says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I want you to think about that. All that is mine is yours. The first mistake he makes was this, thinking that his inheritance had anything to do with the stuff that the father had. His inheritance never had anything to do with that. All this time, he'd been working his butt off trying to earn that inheritance, trying to earn that salvation. And the father says, look, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. In other words, everything that I truly value, everything that I think is worthy of giving to you has always been yours. You didn't earn it. You don't have to earn it. And there's nothing you can do that's going to make me want to take it away from you. What was his inheritance? It was staring right back at him in the face. His inheritance was a relationship with his father. That was the best of what the father had to give. It was the gift of himself. Quick side note for all of you parents out there, pay attention to that. We want to do the best for our kids. We want to make sure they have the right stuff. They have enough stuff. The things that they're going to need the most really is us. 
That's what they need the most. If you, if you don't already do this, I want to I challenge you. At least some point during the day, take your phone, put it on do not disturb, hide it, and be present with your kids so they can have that, that time with you. That's the true inheritance that they need from us as parents. So what was the other mistake the older brother made? I hear you ask. Thanks for asking. <laughs> this is going to take a bit to spell out. So stick with me. But as we, as we follow this, I think we're going to figure out who the fourth character is of this story. Now, if you remember, at the beginning of Luke 15, the whole scene that we said at the beginning, Jesus told three parables. There's a reason why he told those three together in that way at that time. So I want to quickly sum up the first two so that we can see what's missing from this third parable. So the first one was the parable of the lost sheep. A man has 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. The next parable, woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She turns her house upside down until she finds that one lost coin. Now, what's interesting is the way that Jesus tells these stories, he says it in a way that, look, this is what you would do. Nothing out of the ordinary. What he's saying is, you're going to go and search for something that's lost if you truly value it. So what's missing from the prodigal son? Nobody went to go search for him. Man leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one lost sheep. Woman turns her house upside down until she finds that one lost coin. But the younger brother leaves, and nobody goes to find him. Do you know who should have? The older brother. That was his second mistake. Instead of staying in, working, trying to earn his salvation, the moment his brother left, he should have left and, got, and brought him back. So now if you remember the scene that was said at the beginning... Jesus is directing the, these stories at the religious leaders as he's sitting with the sinners. So what he's telling them through this story is, look, if you really understood God, the God that you claim to follow, if you really understood him, you wouldn't be so upset about me sitting at this table right now. If you really knew God, you'd be sitting right here with me. So who was this mysterious fourth character? It was the storyteller himself. It was Jesus. You see, as he's telling the story, he embodies what the older brother should have been doing. As he's telling the religious leaders where they've messed up, as he's talking about this older brother, he spends the rest of the gospel doing what the older brother should have been doing all along, what the religious leaders should have been doing all along. So what do we learn? Think about this for a moment. For, for most of us, at one point in time or another, we are the younger brother. We are that one lost sheep. We are that one lost coin. The one that Jesus leaves the 99 to go and find. But what do we do once we've been found? You see, the story doesn't end there, does it? Once we've been found, we never forget what Jesus did for us. We stop trying to earn our salvation, and instead, we start living into our inheritance. You know what that means? It means that we become one of the 99. It means that just as Jesus goes out to find the next lost sheep, we go with him. 
We follow Jesus. We go out and search for the next lost sheep. And if we don't, we become the older brother of this parable. I think it's interesting how the older brother talks about his younger brother. He says, what does he refer to him as? He says, this son of yours. He tells the father, look, this son of yours did this. This son of yours did that. What does the father say? The father says, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's my son. But it's fitting that we celebrate because this, your brother was dead and is alive again. Your brother was lost and is found. Yeah, yeah, he's my son, but he's also your brother. And then Jesus ends the story without actually ending it. The story doesn't end with the older brother responding to the father's play. Truth is, we don't know. We don't know how the older brother responded. And I think he ends it that way because it, it doesn't matter. It didn't matter how the older brother would respond. However long it would have taken, the father would have remained with his older brother outside pleading with him to come and join the party. You see, at any point, God is always searching for the lost, celebrating with the found, and pleading with the rest of us to come join the party. So the question is then, how do we respond? Now, if you're still searching, or if you still are the younger brother, if physically you are here, but spiritually you're far away, and you feel like you're, you're just, you've gone too far that you can't find your way back, please hear this, you haven't. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, well, well, Chris, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. I know what I've done. I read in the Bible. I know what King David did. I know what Peter did. I know what Paul did. And guess what? The same grace that found each one of them is the same grace that finds us each and every day. But if you have been found... If you've seen and you've tasted the goodness of God's grace, then part of your celebration is spent going out into the world to find the next lost sheep, the next lost coin. And a good place to start. I want you to consider how the scene began. All the religious leaders being scandalized by Jesus sitting with the sinners. Who are the people that you're scandalized by? Who are the ones that offend you the most? Who's the person that if you got to heaven and you saw them there, you're thinking to yourself, how? How did you get here? Because we all have that person, right? Who's the enemy of your story? Who's the villain of your story? <clears throat> Maybe the first place to start is to just by praying for that person. And maybe, maybe that's too big of a step. I get it. Maybe that's too much. You can, you're not even a place where you can pray for them. And if that's the case, then you pray to God to soften your heart. You pray just like the psalmist prayed in 139 when he says, God, search my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. Like anything that's in here that's not of you, burn it away. Look, I don't get it. I don't see what you see in this person. When I see this person, all I see is evil. All I see is hate. But I know that you must see something different. God, can you show me what it is that you see in this person that I can learn from? 
We're going to learn more about this next week as we begin a new series that's devoted to prayer so we can understand what that's all about. But I can tell you one thing that prayer is not. Prayer is not a tool by which we use to manipulate God so that God can change the world for us. Prayer is a tool that we use to open ourselves up so that God can change us and so that we can be a part of the change in the world. And here's why I think this is so important. If you can start to think about your enemies this way, how might that impact how you see everybody else? Or maybe we consider the littles. We have these little ones that come here every weekend. They don't know yet. They haven't heard yet about the grace of God, the love of God. And they're going to hear about it when we decide to take some time out of our weekend and go spend with them so that they can learn that God loves them. I invite you after the service, go to the resource wall and talk to them and, and ask, just ask questions. No pressure. Just ask questions about what it's like to, to be with kids on the weekend. Because I promise you, one of the coolest things you can experience in your journey is to be there the moment when a child first realizes that God loves them. Do you know what the definition of prodigal is? It means recklessly extravagant. So as we read in the first act of the story, the younger brother was indeed the prodigal son because he had recklessly spent everything that, that his father had given him. But the father was also prodigal because God is always recklessly extravagant with his grace. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you that <clears throat> everywhere we look, in every space, in every face, your grace is there covering us all. Father, remind us that we are always in need to come and drink from that fountain. But not only are we invited to come, we are invited to bring others with us to that fountain. Remind us to always look for the one. To take a moment out of our own storyline, out of our own narrative, and enter into the storyline of somebody else. And invite them to come and taste and see that you are good. And Father, continue to show us how to pray to you, how to open ourselves up to your will for our lives, for our place in this world. Help us to be about bringing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In your son's name, amen. Amen. And we're going to go ahead and invite our uh, guest services team to come forward to get ready to receive our tithes and offerings for this weekend. And I'll just kind of echo what Chris said about the, the kids who are coming to this church. You know, Jesus was the ultimate storyteller. And uh, we have a great opportunity this summer. Uh, last I, I checked with the family ministry team, there's still 171 spots able to be filled uh, to sub in with our children's and our students' departments this summer on the weekends. Uh, through the months of June and July. And so I would really encourage you to do that because it gives you the opportunity to share the love that Jesus has showed you and to let them know that they are loved. And then no matter what they've done, God forgives them and God loves them. Amen. Street corner breeze. 
on how God is love and how man can be clean. But my joy has been on holiday and my peace is almost passed away. Tell me I'm forgiven and free. Oh, I tried and tried to rectify my hopeless situation. But I bought the lie, I still have work to do Now I'm working nine to five like I can earn my own salvation But there is no condemnation in you Oh no Oh whisper to me now it is for real Cause in the silence of these walls Righteousness lost its appeal Dirty deeds have done me in Oh, but that can't stop a faithful friend Giving mercy once again As you heal, here it is I'm feeling He tried, tried to rectify my hopeless situation But I bought the lie and still had work to do Now I'm working nine to five like I can earn my own salvation But there is no condemnation, yes Oh, he died and died to rectify my hopeless situation and his blood commands my guilt to leave. Now on Calvary I stand, empty pockets, open hands. Oh, there is no condemnation for me. I hope this situation, but I bought the lie, I still have work to do. Now I'm working nine to five like I can earn my own salvation, but there is no condemnation in you. Child, you're forgiven in love. Oh, child, you're forgiven in love. Child, you're forgiven, and child, you are loved. Oh, child, you're forgiven in love. I invite us all as we go from this place to continue to look for the grace of God in every person that we meet. Have a great day.